Father, we celebrate your faithfulness tonight as we think of all the years we've been given access to this place where we've taught and nurtured and ministered to people, both in this room and throughout the world by the recordings. Thank you, Father, for that. When we started here 13 years ago, we had no idea that you would establish us here in such a long-term fashion. And, uh, Father, that's your style. That's your way. You know, you, 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 yeah, show us where we are to go, but you don't show us how long the journey is going to take. Uh, you don't tell us what's going to be there when we get there. Um, and I think, Father, you do that because if we had it all laid out for us beforehand, we might, uh, we might make our own decisions about whether we had any reason to do it or not. But because we don't know these things, Father, we just follow you and that's enough. And we thank you, Father, that you led us in this way and that you blessed us with this faithful place to teach. And uh, now, Father, as we come to the end of this study and our end of time in this place, we do thank you, Father, that we've completed yet another book of Scripture. Uh, Romans, Father, is, is dear to many believers, dear to us, and so essential in our understanding of our faith. Thank you, Father, for the instruction you give us. Help us to live up to its lofty expectations, Father. Help us by convicting us. Help us, Father, by encouraging us. Help us, Father, by reminding us of what we've learned. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as our study of Romans winds down, we're finishing Paul's next to last issue of sanctification today, and then we'll begin his final topic as well. Paul's issue, the one we've been involved in since last week, is the issue of liberalism. That's the title I gave to it, the term I gave to it. And it's what chapter 14 centers on. The error of liberalism. Liberalism is the error of encouraging other believers to participate in certain freedoms that are contrary to their convictions. Paul uses the term weak at the outset of this chapter to describe the faith of those believers who feel convicted to restrict their own liberty in some fashion in order to please the Lord. From the standpoint of Scripture, their self-imposed restrictions are unnecessary which is why Paul referred to their faith as weak. Nevertheless, Paul taught that from the standpoint of righteousness, those weak believers would be sinning were they to go against their convictions. Moreover, we would be sinning if we encouraged liberalism rather than respecting the convictions of those believers. So today we're going to finish Paul's teaching on this topic of liberalism as he moves into an exhortation that is for all believers in the church It's especially directed to those who are the strong of faith in this equation. That is, those whose liberty is broader, whose convictions are not as encompassing, but yet have to give consideration to those among them who have these stronger convictions, this weaker faith, so to speak. Particularly, he's asking us not to judge their liberty or lack thereof. So let's go to chapter 14. We'll pick up again at that point. Verse 13 is where we pick up in the exhortation I just described. Paul says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So Paul says in this exhortation that our goal is the concern in these matters. What is the goal? What's the right goal in fellowship with other believers? Our goal is not obtaining another believer's agreement with your convictions. That's not a goal. Conformity within the body of Christ in matters of liberty is not a goal. It's not something we should seek for. Rather, our goal, Paul says, should be to do nothing that might harm another believer's pursuit of obedience to Christ. So that means looking for ways to make it easier for the people around us in the body of Christ to receive a good judgment when they face Christ at the Bema Seat. That should be your goal. How do I help someone else have a good judgment? We accomplish that goal only by working to remove obstacles to their obedience, not by putting new obstacles in their path. And Paul refers to our hindering of another's obedience as a stumbling block. Now, you may know, I'm sure, that the Bible makes frequent use of this metaphor, the idea of a, of a stumbling block, something that causes us to fall, metaphorically, into sin. In fact, if you were to search in the Bible, in the English version of our Bible, and in my particular translation, the term stumbling, as in this sense of a stumbling block, it appears 99 times in the Bible. So it's a very frequently used metaphor. In literal terms, a stumbling block is an object that a person walking does not see, and as a result of not seeing it, or not recognizing it properly, their foot catches on that object, leading them to lose their balance and to fall. Right? We all knew this. It's not hard to understand what I'm saying, but there's detail there you might not have thought about. No one falls over something they see and recognize as a stumbling block. The nature of it is it's not something you're looking for. It's not something you recognize. That's why you fall over it. We've all done this more than a few times. And it's a scary thing, particularly as you get older, right? It's a moment that leads to injury. If, not embar- if nothing more than embarrassment, it often leads to injury, right? Or both. That metaphor is really powerful at illustrating the nature of the problem that Paul says we need to avoid. Spiritually speaking, every believer is endeavoring to walk with Christ. That's another frequent metaphor in Scripture. To walk with Christ pictures obeying Him. It's another way of saying obeying his word, following his lead as he directs us toward what is righteous. So when you're listening to his instructions, when you're following his guidance, you're, quote, walking closely with him. When you veer away after your flesh or a temptation of one kind or another, you cease walking with him, so to speak, at least for a while. Not in the salvitic sense. We're talking here in the sense of your obedience. As you walk with Christ, the Spirit points out dangers. In your path, helping you to avoid stumbling. But when we press others in the body of Christ to act against the convictions that the Spirit is giving them, we interfere with the Spirit. We become a stumbling stone. In effect, we take the attention of the believer off of the guidance of the Spirit who is infinitely capable of guiding them past all of these stumbling blocks. We ask them to look at us instead. Let us be their guidance for a minute. We turn into their GPS... And suddenly they're to listen to our voice instead of the Spirit, well-meaning as we may be. We break their stride, we lead them to fall 
in the sense of the metaphor. We contradict the Spirit's instructions in those situations where we go counter to their convictions. And in so doing, we keep the person from properly following Christ. Just as the person in the metaphor didn't recognize that stone or that edge in the concrete before they tripped over it, similarly, our fellow believers don't realize that we're leading them astray. That's the danger of us becoming a stumbling block, right? Our advice will seem well-meaning. Our relationship with them will earn their trust. Our arguments will be biblical because, after all, we're advocating for something that is permissible. It's liberty, after all. There's no inherently wrong thing, necessarily, with what we're saying they should do. But it's not up to whether it's permissible. The issue is whether or not their convictions allow for it. That's the chief danger with liberalism. It's spiritual poison delivered by the hands of friends who are not necessarily trying to hurt somebody, but that's not the point. That's why Paul puts the burden for solving the problem of liberalism on those who would offer the advice. You notice that? You notice he does not ask in this passage for the weak to become stronger, more discerning, more careful in who they take their advice from more critical in their thinking, and more doubting. That's never the advice he gives. Remember, they're the weaker ones. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, you know, they're like toddlers. You cannot expect them to take responsibility for this situation. It's because they're weak that this is a problem. Instead, he puts the burden on the stronger in the body. And let's just assume we're all that person. And I don't think that's even necessarily a false assumption, because if you sit in this Bible study, you probably are uh, a little more mature than the average person in the body of Christ, not because I'm crediting you with my teaching, just because your interest in this kind of thing probably says a lot about what's in your heart. So let's take for a minute that we're the stronger in this analogy. Paul puts the burden on us. That is to say, we have to protect the interests of the weaker within the body by having a sensitivity to their convictions without judging them, which is why Paul directs the church to set ourselves up with this goal. Have a goal of not putting an obstacle in your brother's path. Meaning, do not advocate for greater liberty than someone feels comfortable assuming, thinking you're helping them. Because you think that more liberty will be a good thing for them. But also, he adds at the end of the passage I just read, we neither can act in ways that another believer would find uncomfortable in light of their conviction. So it's both being careful in what we advocate by our words and what we endorse by our actions. Both of these concerns have to be on the hearts of the stronger. And here again, Paul is not advocating for us to adopt the weaknesses of other brothers and sisters, and nor are we to endorse their theological shortcomings, their thinkings concerning diet, etc. Notice in verse 14, Paul makes clear that he knows that there is no need to abstain from any food for the sake of righteousness. Verse 14, Paul makes clear, he says, I am convinced and I know through the Lord Jesus there is no such thing as an unclean food. We are righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ. His work on our behalf is put to rest any need to observe ritual cleanliness. Simply put, the rituals of the law, including ritual cleanliness, are no longer in effect for the believer. Therefore, food means nothing in matters of personal holiness. It does not make you more holy to avoid things. It does not make you less holy to eat things. Paul says he knows that. And as strong, mature believers, we do too. So all the more, he says, don't use food, which you know to be spiritually meaningless, as a weapon. Don't use it to diminish another person's holiness by countering their convictions. That's what Paul says in verse 15. 
We walk without love if we divide over food. Which means you cannot press others to eat what they do not feel comfortable eating, nor should we cause them to separate from themselves from us because we continue eating in their presence things they find offensive. In both cases, you've chosen food over loving your brother. Now remember, this chapter began discussing weaker brothers and sisters in the body of Christ eating, as Paul said, only vegetables in the fellowship gathering. And if you remember, we explained that last time as happening likely because Jewish believers in that day were avoiding eating with the Gentile believers in the church because the Gentile believers were holding to unclean practices in the way they prepared, served, or ate the food or the kind of food that was on the menu. And because the Gentiles um, hadn't persuaded the Jews to relax in their convictions, they just decided to go about things in their own way and offended them by their behaviors. So they persisted in eating what they knew would offend the Jews, despite the fact that they knew it would hurt them. And as a result, it forced the Jews that were with them into this vegetarian diet. That was the only thing they could eat that was safely kosher for them. That was the situation that opened the chapter. And remember, this letter was written to a mostly Gentile church at the time in Rome, but yet one that was probably founded by Jews from Pentecost. So when you add all that history up, you come to conclude, based on Paul's comments, there must have been a division of some sort in that body between the Jew and the Gentile, and it's centered on food. Jews keeping the dietary laws were at odds with Gentiles and maybe a few mature Jews who had moved beyond the law. And so when food was served, these two groups split in the room. Or maybe you know, there was two different rooms. The weaker Jews adopting vegetarianism rather than sharing the meat that was in the meal for the rest of the, the believers. That sounds like a very awkward, unloving community, doesn't it? And don't think it stopped at the table, right? After you've just been split up over the meal, you don't think they feel the same about each other the rest of the day either, do they? I mean, it's just inevitable that that was a split, which is why Paul, in verse 16, advises that you don't take your liberty and weaponize it against your brothers. Liberty is a great thing in the body of Christ, right? How much happier are you living under liberty than you would have been if you had had to keep some part of the law as a result of coming to Christ, right? As Gentiles, we take that privilege for granted because you're never under the law. It doesn't make much difference to you. You never conceived that you could ever have been under the law, right? Would you imagine what it would mean, though, for us if coming to Christ included the need to adopt the law as part of your experience in life, the burden of it? What if Christ, for example, had not performed all of the law for us in his earthly life? What if he had left some of the law unfulfilled so that we would have to accomplish that part of the law for ourselves to kind of complement what he did in order to get the whole package that he was offering? Think about that for a minute. That would have eliminated liberty. And it would have left you burdened with those specific rules, those unfulfilled areas of the law. And here's the worst part. You'd have to equal his perfection, right? So you'd have to keep that part of the law perfectly, whatever he left for you, in order for it to be fulfilled. You couldn't break that part of the law. Well, it'd be crazy. That's why he didn't do it. Because you and I would not have been able to do that. And we would have gone nuts trying to figure out how not to break them. I mean, it would have been the worst kind of burden. Instead, Christ won the prize of liberty for us. And that's a good thing, certainly. And you certainly want to protect your liberty. But you protect it first by not allowing liberty to be thought of as evil, Paul says. And that's another way to define liberalism. Liberalism is making liberty a source of sin. The life of the church should use 
the liberty that Christ won for us, to further eternal causes, eternal outcomes, chief among them, a good report, a good judgment for all believers in the church. Paul says the kingdom is not about eating and drinking. The mission, in other words, of the kingdom, given to us, given to the church, is not found in the pleasures you have on earth. We're not advancing the cause of the kingdom when we encourage certain dietary habits or liberties. Nor are we experiencing the fullness of the kingdom when you enjoy a particular food or drink here. At best, those things just bring comfort to your physical body, which is a dying thing, I might add, destined to be shed before the kingdom even arrives. So regardless of how noble your motives are, you cannot make the adoption of certain lifestyles the aim of your work in Christ. If your mission in the church, if your goal in fellowship is to modify the lifestyles of other believers in areas of liberty, you've got the most worthless goal you could possibly set for yourself in the body of Christ. It does them no eternal good, it's meddlesome, and more than likely, you are actually leading them against their convictions, which would mean you're causing them to sin. You'd be better off sitting in your church saying nothing than to pursue a goal of modifying people's lifestyles. Again, I'm speaking now about areas of liberty. We're not talking about helping people move beyond sin. That's a different thing altogether. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we have been assigned a specific role, a specific job, which is to work for the expansion of the kingdom. And in today's terms, in the time of the church, that literally means recruiting citizens to become part of this kingdom even before the kingdom itself physically arrives on earth. And you further that mission by what I'm going to call soul work, not body work. Soul work. Being absorbed in eating and drinking concerns is body work. It's not soul work. Instead, our mission should be to pursue, Paul says, to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's soul work. And each has a meaning in the context of this conversation. Pursuing righteousness in this context refers to working to advance the gospel both in the words we use and in the actions of our lives. Obviously, sharing the gospel with others by words is the most obvious sort of expected way in which we perform our mission. But we are also to pursue righteousness in our person through the walk of sanctification. And part of that means restraining your liberty. Part of your sanctifying walk in Christ, which is your mission of sharing the truth, sharing righteousness, will be at times restricting your liberty. As Paul says, to become all things to all men so that I might win a few. Becoming somebody I need to become within the realm of what is permissible so that I can appeal to someone in their terms, not on my terms. And in that appealing with them, in that fellowshipping with them, opportunities develop. And that's not just limited to unbelievers. Within the body, my ability to influence you for the better in your own walk of sanctification will depend heavily on whether you respect what I have to say or how I live. If my interaction with you is dominated by conflict over what you eat versus what I eat, I have very little hope to make a positive impact on your life. That's pursuing righteousness. Secondly, pursuing peace. That refers to seeking unity in the body, being at peace with one another, being at peace with your own convictions. When you trouble one another with personal convictions, you're robbing each other of peace. I've seen this personally more than a few times. The peace of two believers disrupted over meaningless disagreements over whether one of them can eat pork or the other one can, you know, stay home on the Sabbath. Meaningless things, body work, not soul work. And yet peace is being robbed in the midst of that meaningless argument. 
And even more, we undermine unity in the body by making our differences in these convictions appear to be problems that must be solved. Instead, guard each other's liberty to maintain those differences. Do you hear that? Guard liberty in such a way as to allow those differences to be maintained, as individual convictions would allow. And in that way, you encourage unity in peace. And then finally, pursuing joy in the Holy Spirit, the last of the three, Paul said, is is our mission. That means ensuring everyone knows the joy of pleasing Christ by their obedience. From my experience, I know this to be true from others who have gone through their own walk and come out the other side in a better place. They always say the same thing. There is no greater joy to be found in the body of Christ than that quiet confidence in your own heart that you know you're obeying Christ. You wake up every morning and you know you are in his will. Not sinless, that's not the standard, but you are not contrary to Christ's will in your life. You are where you're supposed to be. You're listening to him. You're growing. You're seeing the fruit of that in your life. You know where you've come from. You know where you're going. You're not perfect. you still got issues, but there's that peace, that joy, rather, that knows there's good things happening right now. And I like what's happening. I like where I'm going. And I'm excited about that. A believer will never know greater joy than obeying Christ. Turning from temptation to sin and maintaining a close walk with Him. And you'll never know, by the way, the corollary to this, and I've seen this in my life too, you will never know more trouble than when you are out of step with Christ. Ignoring your own convictions. You'll never feel worse. It's like you can't win. Our mission as a body has to be to encourage every believer around us to find that place in their walk with Christ. Knowing His will... So they'll live in harmony with it, seeking to please him by their obedience and living with the fact that that roadmap will look different from one person to the next. Having peace in the certainty of your convictions, the joy of keeping them. As Paul says in verses 18 and 19, those believers who set their mind on serving Christ will be approved both by God and their fellow man. So let's not seek for others to approve your convictions. No one else has to approve what you choose to do. What you want to make sure, though, is that God approves it. For that matter, for those who are strong in their view, you don't need to have your convictions affirmed by convincing a lot of other people to join you in them. That's not loving, that's ego. Pursue those things that make for peace and for the building up of one another. Give way to other convictions without necessarily adopting them for yourself. You affirm others in their determination to be obedient without making them feel small for having restrained their own liberty. A believer who won't eat a certain food is not someone to be mocked or fixed. They are a weaker brother or sister whose conscience must be protected, whose convictions must be respected. And yet, once more, for the sake of emphasis, Paul says in verse 20, not to adopt the weaker brother's restrictive lifestyle. That's not the way in which we support them. We can just avoid tearing them down without joining in their weakness. You want to walk that line between those two evils. On the one hand, don't undermine their convictions... On the other hand, you don't want to give reason for believers to agree with that weaker viewpoint. So if we have a weaker brother in the church who's got dietary issues that are not required, but they yet feel they are, we try to respect them to the extent we can. As much as possible, we observe them in a community setting so that they aren't ostracized. But at the same time, we don't want anyone in the church to think that what that person believes should be the mandate for everyone else. We just are giving room for that weaker brother to catch up in their own spiritual maturity. That's a balancing act, and I don't know that it's always easy to do. But if your heart is to affirm them and the body in general, you'll find a path. God will show you how to deal with it. Paul's summary 
is in verses 22 and 23. And in it, he gives three rules for dealing with liberalism. It's sort of a summary of everything we've said, but the three rules are helpful. Verse 22, he says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Rule number two, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Rule number three, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. This is really a nice summary. I'll take you through each one. Rule number one, hold to the faith you have on matters of liberty as a matter of a conviction before God. Each believer is going to have a difference in their liberty according to how they feel convicted. So follow your convictions and do it as a matter of faith and obedience. Remember, you seek to please God. You're not worried about what other people think. It's not about man, it's about God. You are accountable to God. You're not accountable to fellow believers in this area. So knowing this, don't let liberalism compromise your convictions. Rule number two, don't condemn yourself by what you approve. Don't become an advocate for meaningless things like eating or drinking. For in doing so, you run the risk of leading other members of the body into sin, causing them to stumble, bringing condemnation upon them and yourself. Instead, be an advocate for the kingdom, for eternal outcomes of righteousness, peace, and joy. Happy is the one who doesn't condemn himself by what he approves. So the issue isn't that the thing you're approving is wrong. That's also true, obviously. If I approve adultery, I'm condemning myself. But Paul didn't need to write that. That's self-evident. The thing you needed to remember is when you approve eating pork at the expense of a brother's conviction, you're condemning yourself by what you approve. You're condemning yourself by your own liberty, because you were using it against another brother's convictions. That's the context of this chapter. And then finally, rule number three, when we are persuaded to go against our convictions, we sin, even in matters that are not themselves sin. So your convictions, as God assigns them to you, is, is that's your roadmap for sanctification, handwritten by God for you. Your journey is going to look different than other believers' journeys. The Spirit's going to grant freedoms for you that he may not grant to me, and vice versa. And he'll particularly grant less freedoms to people who haven't traveled as far in their journey as others. Don't second-guess your convictions just because others don't have the same convictions. Respect the Spirit's direction, and don't criticize others for what they have in their convictions. Trust that the Lord knows better than you do what's right for someone else and what's right for you. And if you act contrary to a conviction, even though you know on Scripture's testimony that it's not an issue of sin, nevertheless, you're still sinning. You're still sinning because it wasn't right for you. Now, Paul's ready to flip the coin. So we've talked liberalism, trying to bring too much liberty to people who aren't ready for it. If you flip the coin over, what do you find? What's the opposite of liberalism? Legalism. In chapter 14, we just studied the situation of stronger believers who enjoy more freedom and impose that liberty, that stronger liberty, on weaker members who weren't ready for it. Now, in Rome, in the case of this church, that situation came in the context of Jews and Gentiles who were contending over food. So stronger Gentile believers and maybe stronger Jewish believers wanted to impose their freedom on the weaker Jewish believers who weren't ready for it yet. That was liberalism, and that's wrong. Now, in the first half of chapter 15, Paul is going to consider the opposite problem. And now the problem is one of weaker believers seeking to impose their more restrictive lifestyle on liberal brothers and sisters. Again, in Rome, the concern here was of Jewish believers who wanted the Gentile believers to become more Jewish in order to secure unity. 
I don't believe in the case of Rome that this was an issue of Judaizers who were trying to tell the the Gentiles they had to be Jew to be saved. I don't feel that that's what Paul's dealing with here. It doesn't seem to be. It's more in the issue of unity again. That's been the theme on this chapter and on the one prior. That is the body not working well together because of these divisions. So in this case, Jewish believers who expected that in order to gain unity in the body, they needed Gentiles around them to adopt Jewish dietary laws, to adopt the Sabbath restrictions, maybe even to take circumcision. That's the opposite of liberalism, it's legalism. So just as liberalism is an abuse of liberty, legalism is an abuse of personal conviction. One is an abuse of liberty, the other is an abuse of conviction. It's making your personal convictions a law for everyone. That's why we call it legalism. It's requiring others to live according to a law that doesn't actually exist, except in your mind. We're not talking about enforcing actual biblical commands again. That is a necessary discipline of ensuring that the body meets God's standards. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is not asking you to keep Christ's commands. Legalism is making yourself another's judge and convicting them for failing to meet your commands, your standards. Paul spends less time on legalism than he did on liberalism, and he does it for a couple of reasons. First, many of the points in that earlier chapter on liberalism would just apply here. I mean, Paul's already told us, respect another person's convictions. That's true whether they're more liberal than us or whether they're more restrictive than us, and either way, that's still the same command. And he's also said you can't impose your convictions on another person, nor can you judge another one for having different convictions. Again, all of those truths carry over to the topic of legalism as much as they did for the topic of liberalism. Just apply all the same teaching and you'll get out of legalism just as fast. Secondly, Paul addressed the relationship of the believer to the law back in previous chapters of this book. Paul said we are not under the law. And therefore, knowing we are not under the law but under grace, there's already a command in this letter for the believer not to resubmit to the commands of the law. Finally, the problem of weaker believers running around imposing their legal lifestyle, their stronger convictions, on stronger believers, that's a far less worrisome problem. It's a far less likely problem. As much as we complain about legalism, the problem that we're usually referring to when we say there's too much legalism in the church, it's that our leadership has imposed too much of that in the culture of the church. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about on an individual basis. And it's very hard in most cases for a weaker believer's convictions to impose themselves onto the life of a stronger believer. We just ignore them. Right? We just say, I'm sorry, that's not what I believe is true. We don't feel any pressure from that, generally speaking. So for all our fear of legalism, the frequency of it and the power of it in the body of Christ is relatively muted. And this is putting aside for the moment Concerns like Judaizers who went out in their organized fashion trying to make Jews out of Gentiles. Their influence was destined to die out. Even in Paul's day, he recognized that the church was becoming increasingly less Jewish and increasingly Gentile. So Paul understood that the future of this church was going to be among Gentiles, not among Jews. There was not a long-term concern of Judaizing in the church. It was a first century concern for the most part. And by the way, Gentiles have never been particularly persuaded by argument that they should go and adopt the Jewish practices of the law, much less take things like circumcision. It's never been a very popular movement in the church. These were not the kind of concerns Paul needed to really dive into for any length of time. 
And yet there is an issue of legalism in the church within the members of the body. There is still a concern. Paul focuses on this in chapter 15, but he only speaks tangentially about Jews imposing legalism on Gentiles. He gets to it toward the end in verses 8 through 12. But that's only sort of at the tail end of the argument. The main argument for the church and the lasting argument for the church is found in verses 1 through 7. In verses 1 through 7, Paul writes generally about accepting one another in the body, and his teaching on showing acceptance is a bridge between liberalism and legalism. You'll see it clearly. Look at verse 1. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is sort of a concise summary of what we just studied in chapter 14. In some ways, it mirrors the opening verse of 14. If they're close enough in your Bible, you can see them at the same time. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 14 and in verse 1 of chapter 15. In 14, Paul said, except the weak, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. Here he says, you strong, bear the weakness of those who are without strength, but not to please yourself. He's saying something similar, but they're not exactly the same. And here's the difference. In chapter 14, Paul asks for the strong to accept those who were weak in their convictions, that is, those who really had too much restriction on their liberty. They were weak. They didn't feel the freedom of their liberty. He says, accept them as they are. So in that first case, Paul expected that the weaker would be welcomed into the body without the stronger in the body, demanding that they drop their convictions first. Now Paul is saying that the body is not to lose patience with those weaker convictions after they've joined the body. In the case of chapter 14, he's saying, don't put a litmus test in front of them. And in the case of chapter 15, he's saying, as you bring them in, continue to seek to please them for their edification. This is how the stronger believer is to deal with the legalism of a weaker believer. Just as it was wrong to force liberal thinking on them in the earlier chapter, now you are to bear up under their legalism while they're among you in the church. You hear that? So I had those weaker brothers and sisters showing up, and I let them come in as they were. Now Paul's saying, continue to accept them in that weaker state indefinitely in the church. You're not to see this as somehow now a a problem you have to fix. But here's the point. Who's bearing the responsibility to fix the problem of legalism? It's the same ones who had to bear the problem of liberalism. And you may not have expected that, because in the case of liberalism, it was the stronger causing the problem, trying to impose their liberty on others who weren't ready for it. So it was natural to assume that the stronger had to have the solution. Hold back, respect conviction. Now you get to the flip side, and you're thinking, okay, finally, those weak guys are going to get their comeuppance, because we're going to say to them, back off on all your legalism. Nope. He says to the stronger, bear up under their legalism. Bear their weaknesses. And he says, and not for the purpose of pleasing yourself. In other words, not for some false motive, but for the purpose of their edification. Paul continues to ask the stronger to take ownership 
for solving the problem in the body because the stronger are the ones with the strength to do the good work that needs to happen. They're to bear up under the assault of all of this legal restriction. And we don't try to stop their convictions. We don't make them feel bad for pressing their legalism on them. We bear it, seeking to please them within limits for their edification. That's a reminder that strength in in your walk with Christ brings certain obligations, right? To whom much is given, much is required. You're not... You don't have a right at some point in the body to look at someone who's become a pain in the neck because of their spiritual weaknesses and turn on them as if to say, I've given you enough time. You know, we've kind of put up with you long enough. We're we're ready to move on, and you're not apparently moving with us, so we're ready to leave you behind. Now, there is some place, I think, for exhorting someone, for encouraging them, and and maybe even in a strong way encouraging them. There's certainly a place for helping people see that they have a responsibility to mature. We talked about that last week. But there's never a place to reject them. There's never a place to draw a line in the sand and say, we can't have you anymore here. And Paul's example for us in that regard is who? Who is always his example for us? Christ. He says, Christ bore the reproaches of rejection, beating, scourges, and ultimately the cross. And he did those things for weaker members of his body, which is obviously all of us. These are the things Christ didn't deserve to experience. Right? He didn't deserve any of this. He was strong enough that he shouldn't have to put up with any of this. He could have spoken a word, as he says in the Gospels, and a legion of angels could have freed him from the chains. But he accepted those weaknesses. He bore them, un- uh, bore them for others because he said the others didn't know what they were doing. Remember that line? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Think like that. Forgive this brother of mine, Father. He knows not what he does. And I'll just keep bearing it with him until you show him the light. You know, if you have to think that to get yourself through a moment where you're dealing with someone who's not easy to deal with in the body of Christ because they don't have the spiritual maturity that makes that interaction as pleasant as you might otherwise want it to be, so be it. You were probably them a few years earlier with somebody else. That's our model, though. Bearing or accepting the weaknesses of others, beautifully, for their edification, so that all would receive grace. That's our model. Bear the indignities of legalistic behavior around you. Make them feel pleased that others are respecting their convictions. Do so without condemnation or judgment. Remember, Christ did worse for your sake. And then in verse 4, Paul says, there's a silver lining for you in this. Referring to the Old Testament scripture, and specifically to the law, Paul reminds us that, the things that might be guiding their convictions were written to instruct us. And Paul says that many believers over the centuries have found perseverance and encouragement in those scriptures. And while we may not be under the letter of the law, a believer can still be instructed by those things from the Old Testament. And in this case, what he's suggesting is that as stronger believers, we can be instructed by the law in the sense that it's a tool God's using to teach us how to bear up under the legalism of weaker believers. Isn't that kind of funny if you think about it? That someone might misuse the law, making it more restrictive on themselves than they need be, forcing a confrontation with those who are stronger, putting the burden on us to have to contend and bear up. And in that kind of roundabout way, what the law is doing in our life is still instructing us by exposing those parts of our personality that aren't ready for showing grace to others as we should. And so we're learning. We're having to practice in that regard. And by the way, When you do these things for these brothers and sisters, that is bearing up under their weaknesses, 
And as the edification process of the body does its work in their heart, as the Spirit continues to mature them, there will be a day, more than likely, when they will reach a point of maturity. And as they reach that point of maturity, made possible in part by our willingness to accept them and work with them in the body, they'll reach a point where they will look back. And they will remember fondly your willingness to bear up under their weaknesses without causing them embarrassment, without chastising them, without making them feel that they were somehow less valuable in the body. You ever think about that? That they'll actually have a fond memory of how you were willing to accept something that they now recognize was a burden on other people. Consider how spiritually mature, strong believers will be made to grow. If you're spiritually strong, if you're secure in your liberty, you feel like you have reached this point in your walk with Christ, good for you. Well, God isn't done with you. I mean, you're still here. So what's next for you? Where do you think he goes in his work of sanctification in your heart? How does he move you further? You think it's going to be more Bible study? Is it going to be more you know, rooms like this of self-admiration schools where we all kind of love the Bible together? And it's great that we love the Bible. But it isn't going to be by more of the same that you continue to grow. The Bible, if it's going to continue to grow, you has to expose you to things you didn't already know. It's going to have to call things out of you that you weren't already giving to God. It's going to have to move you. And then the experiences of the body have to do the same. And one of those is bearing up under the inconveniences and weaknesses of spiritually immature people. I believe in wholeheartedness that the reason the body of Christ has the diversity, not only of culture and language and so on, but also of spiritual maturity, is it's how you get a chance to use your spiritual gifts. You know, if everybody knew the Bible, they wouldn't need a teacher. If everybody knew how to pray well, they wouldn't need people to pray for them. If everyone was always optimistic, you wouldn't need encouragers. In other words, you need the weak side for the strong side to get used. And all of us have a spiritual gift, and in that sense, that's our strength. That means there's somebody in the body who needs that strength. So it's designed by God's wisdom to mix a bunch of people together who are sort of pluses and minuses that line up together. It's so funny, though, when we look around the room and we don't see conformity to our standards and our maturity, we want to root that out. But what you're doing is you're eliminating the opportunity for your own strengths to be put to work. By bearing legalism in the church, we give opportunity for the Lord to test our patience and our willingness to show grace, our selflessness, our sacrifice. And our recognition that unity counts more than our personal desires. Verse 5, Paul prays that the Lord might give the stronger in the church, again, I'm thinking that's folks like us, perseverance and encouragement to pursue unity among the weak, to be of the same mind as Christ was, who sought unity with sinners. Think of that. Christ's goal in coming was to find unity with sinners. Talk about a union of unequals. Right? Jesus united with the likes of us, and as he did so, he did it at great personal cost. And there's your example, so that he could present to himself a spotless bride, Scripture says. So our goal is to be one mind in that respect. That is to stop caring about whether other convictions, others' convictions are inconvenient or unnecessary. We only care about what's best for them. We sacrifice to let them grow. We know that in the end it will be good for the unity of the body. We can all praise the Lord in one voice. That's the goal. So the opening teaching of chapter 15 establishes two main ideas. Even though weaker believers are responsible for promoting legalism, nevertheless the responsibility for solving the problem falls to the stronger. And just as with liberalism, Paul expects those with seniority in the faith to take care of the issue. Unity in the body is our goal. Spiritually strong believers are are to be held accountable, in my opinion, based on this passage,
for how we handle those situations. Parents are responsible for misbehaving children. Similarly, spiritually strong in the body are responsible for helping the spiritually weak. That's his first point. Secondly, the solution for legalism is found in bearing the weaknesses, not pleasing ourselves. So here again, I might love drinking or I might love pork or I might love whatever the thing is, but the situation and the relationship demands that I put those aside. I could please myself or I could seek unity. That's the conflict that Paul's saying you always choose for unity not to please yourself. Christ being our standard. Think about what Christ did. He accepted weaker, sinful humanity by grace. He accepted them no matter how burdensome or unnecessary their sin debt was. Accept them though they placed demands on the body that were very unlike his standards and his choices. And he did so because it was the only way to mature them and grow them to something better. It's all the same rules for us. And that's how you glorify the Father. Paul moves on now to touch on the specific issues of Jew and Gentile that were driving this concern in Rome. Here again, not our chief concern. Not today as much. So this last section, it's the last teaching section of the letter. It's only on this issue of Jews accepting Gentiles into the body. We'll address it as Paul does. We don't have to belabor it except to just acknowledge it. And then we'll do one summary verse. Verse 13 is the benediction of sorts, and we'll cover that and be done with this teaching. Paul in verse 8 says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So Paul's just quoting here from the Old Testament to remind Jews that Christ came as a servant of the circumcision, which is a reference to the Jewish nation. So he came to serve them according to the promises God made to their fathers. And in those promises made to the fathers of Israel... In particular to Abraham, he said he would bless all nations through this seed. Of course, that's a promise that Messiah would help not only Jews, but Gentiles. Now, nothing serves to make that point faster to a Jew than just to give them their Old Testament. So Paul quotes from Psalm 18 and verse 9, Deuteronomy 32 in verse 10, Psalm 117 in verse 11, and Isaiah 11 in verse 12. And all those passages reaffirm that God has been saying from the beginning that he intended to bring Gentiles into his assembly. That's what's specific in each of those passages. Each one of those passages unites the concept of Jews praising God and Gentiles praising God together. So it wasn't just a matter of God reaching out to those two groups independently. They were going to be working together in their praise of God. That's what Paul says the Jews in the church need to expect and support. All right, he ends his teaching with a benediction of sorts. It's just one verse. Verse 13, now if you look at your Bible, of course, there's quite a bit left in the letter, and you're wondering, well, why am I acting as if it's all wrapped up here? Well, because it is. What he does in the rest of this letter is some very personal matters related to his missionary journeys, his need for funds, and some thanks and salutations to some individuals. So we'll cover all of that next week. It'll be a lighter teaching, of course. It'll be more teaching of history than it will be of theology, but that's sort of a nice way to wrap up the letter when you think about it. We've had a lot of theology already. Verse 13, though, kind of puts a a period to the end of the teaching. Paul says in verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, 
so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. These statements that Paul makes, you see these quite commonly near the end of his letters. It's very easy to see them almost like sincerely, respectfully, and I hope you have a nice day and, you know, you know, not with a lot of weight. But in reality, they always have a very specific sense to what he has been talking about in the letter. And the same is true here. Paul wished here for the Lord to fill the church in Rome with all the joy and the peace that comes with believing, he says. The fact that Paul expresses this as a wish or a request, that strongly suggests that experiencing joy and peace is optional for the Christian. Not in eternal terms, certainly, but in temporal terms. I mean, make no mistake, every Christian has access to joy and peace. It's available. And by God's grace, we all will know joy and peace in eternity. But what Paul is speaking about here is the experience of his readers in this age, while we're in the body of Christ, in this body, in this dying body, And during that time, we might know joy and peace, or we might not. We all have met, I'm sure, miserable Christians. And we've all probably been that person at one time or another in our own life. So what determines whether we experience joy and peace while we're believing, it's found in that phrase, in believing. That phrase in Greek does not describe the salvation process. It's in in a verb tense that is an action that's ongoing. Whereas your salvation is always described in terms of an action that is an immediate, one-time action. So in the way it's being used here, it's euphemism for your walking with Christ, for pursuing sanctification, for living out righteousness. It's in the same sense that Paul says, work out your salvation. It's this idea that being saved has put you on a course now of work. And that work is about working out what you've been given by faith, working it out in your life, working it out in your behavior, in your thinking, in your actions, in your, in your very being in this body. Simply put, your sanctification. That's been the topic of chapters 12 and onward, hasn't it? The whole idea of how you put to work the salvation you received. How you live out the righteousness that you've obtained in Christ by faith. So Paul's saying... For those in the body who follow the prescriptions that he has spelled out for us in these chapters, for those people in the body of Christ who faithfully, obediently do these things, they will know joy and peace. You will likely also know trials and tribulation and persecution and disappointments. We're not saying this is a panacea. Those things, though, will not define you. They will not rob you of your spiritual joy. They will not disturb your spiritual peace because those things peace and joy and the like for the believer who is living out their faith, those things are not based in circumstance. They're not based in feelings. In other words, you're not peaceful and joyful because your day has been peaceful and joyful. That's the way the unbeliever life is like. Our joy will be a supernatural response to working hand in hand with Christ, recognizing his righteousness taking hold in our hearts. Remember the story I mentioned earlier tonight of what it feels like for that believer who sees the progression they're making. Fitfully as it may be, you know, back and forth as it may go. Nevertheless, they sense it, they see it, they recognize what's happening in their life, and they marvel at it, and there's a real joy in that that transcends whether or not they had a good day at work. In fact, when you had a bad day at work, returning to the things of the spiritual have a way of just lifting you right back up out of it, right? That's, it's the reverse problem or the reverse situation. 
And for that same person, their peace will be unshakable as they grow in spiritual maturity because they begin to grow not only in what they know about sin and their own nature, but they also begin to grow in their understanding of what's coming in the eternal. And they gain that phrase I use, eyes for eternity. They tend to think a lot more about what's coming than about what is. If your life in Christ is focused on the fact that you're going to be with Him, serve Him, and that what you're doing right now is furthering that goal, then what this world has for you, good, bad, or indifferent, it just doesn't matter. You don't think about it very much. You know, it's in and out of your life. It's a day and it's gone. You just deal with it and you move on. I'm trying not to, you know, just paint a, a rosy picture of life. We all know what life can be like sometimes. But the fruit of the Spirit, by its nature, is a condition of the heart that does not depend on circumstance. That's its power. You're not happy because the world's good, and you're not sad because the world's bad. <laughs> your, your, your feelings are not driven by these things because you're not of the world. You've overcome the world. Paul says at the end of verse 13 that if you obtain these things and what I just described, you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You'll have this eternal hope. You won't hope for earthly things. You'll be hoping for eternal things because your mind will be on things above. And as a result, the things of this world just fade. They really do. Now, you know, there's, there's a reality to this that you don't toss out the window, right? We still care about the world to a certain degree because we still have earthly goals, you know, retirement, graduations. We still want our house to look a little better and our car to be a little nicer. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves. And they play a role in our decision-making, and that's fine. I think Jesus had to get new sandals when his wore out. I mean, there's a reality to life, but they don't define you. They don't define your interests. If you aren't feeling that fruit now, if none of this makes any sense, or if you've not felt it in a while, then check your walk with Christ against what Paul has written in chapters 12 through 15. Are you hand in hand with him, are you, or, or are you watching him from a distance? If he feels distant, then run back to him. Return to listening to him, serving him, craving that experience of becoming more like him. And do it in the company of believers, because you can't do it by yourself. And do it by the power of the Spirit, that is... Trusting that as God leads you in your convictions, good things will follow. He changes you from the inside out. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this night, for this teaching, for the reminder, Father, that the strong have a responsibility, Father, and a reminder that we seek unity more than we do our personal needs. Give us the strength, Father, when we face those moments with believers around us who challenge our patience. And, Father, give us humility to see that we're the one challenging others sometimes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.